Welcome to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Coming up on the program this week, we talk with the author of a new book about dissent and the significant role it has played in change in American history. In the second half of the Spark Weekly, January is National Poverty in America Awareness Month, and we speak with community progress councils that work toward helping people become self-sufficient. Author Ralph Young writes that the history of America is a history of dissent. From the protest of the British Parliament's taxation policies that led to the American Revolution, to the fight for women's right to vote, to the civil rights movement, anti-war demonstrations and protests, and the Black Lives Matter uprisings, dissent has fueled change in the U.S. Young's newly published book is called American Patriots, A Short History of Dissent. Ralph Young joins us today on The Spark. Ralph Young is a professor of instruction of history at Temple University and author of or editor of several other books focusing on history. Dr. Young, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you for having me. All right. So this is actually an updated version of your book, Descent the History of an American Idea. What prompted you to write this or at least update it? Yeah, well, that book came out in 2015, and it was a full narrative history of dissent in America from colonial days to the present. And, and basically, the theme of that book is that uh, the United States is a product of dissent. You know, even before the United States was formed, there were dissenters, religious dissenters in the 17th century, uh, political dissenters in the 18th century, which led to the American Revolution. And then it was put into the, the, into the Bill of Rights, and Americans have dissented ever since. Uh, when the book came out in 2015, uh, you know, I went, had gone all the way through, you know, the abolitionist movement, the women's movement, all the civil rights movements, the anti-war movements. Uh, but then after 2015, there's been a lot more dissent <laughs> uh, during the end of the Obama years and the Trump years, and it has grown at an exponential pace. However, what prompted me to kind of rethink everything about my book and the way I've looked at dissent was January 6th. And, you know, when these people invaded the Capitol and then you had afterwards people, you know, politicians who had been hiding in the cellar in the Capitol as the, you know, the Senate floor is being invaded in the House of Representatives, uh, later were saying, well, they were just, protesting, exercising their right to protest. And it got me to think, well, why do we have the right to protest? Why was it put into the Constitution? And it struck me that these framers of the Constitution, they were very aware that they were creating an experiment, is you know, an experiment in the idea that can people run a government? Is it we the people? We're, we're the ones who have the sovereignty. And um, because this was an experiment, and if people could rule, uh, they wanted, of course, to have people join on to this and decide that they wanted to be a part of this new government. And of course, with the Bill of Rights and all these enumerated rights that we have, uh, you know, they put the right to dissent so that people would understand that if the government was not living up to its part of the bargain, they had a right to protest for these rights if they felt that any of these rights were not being uh, respected or protected. And, um, and the way so many people have looked 
you know, and so many dissenters over the course of American history, the way they've looked at our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, that these, this is like a contract and that uh, the government has promised to protect our rights and therefore we will obey the government. We will go along with this. But if you felt that your rights were not being respected, uh, then you had the right to protest. You had the right to protest for right. What you did not have is the right to protest to uh, do away with somebody else's rights, that all people were equal under the law in the United States and everybody had equal rights, even though, incidentally, the framers didn't necessarily consider women would have equal rights or former you know, slaves or former slaves, et cetera. Uh, but of course, this has expanded throughout the course of American history. And when groups of people regardless of their racial, ethnic, or, you know, uh, sexual background, they had a right to protest for rights if they felt that their rights were being uh, delimited, as it were. So let's go back to January 6th. In the book, you make the point that it wasn't a productive political dissent, what happened at the U.S. Capitol in Washington on January 6th. What made it different? Well, first of all, they were protesting a lie. They were protesting based on conspiracy theories. And I think that many of the people that invaded the Capitol believe those theories. Uh, many of the people who did uh, knew that these were wrong, but this is what they wanted to have happen. They didn't, they didn't like the result of the election. What they were doing basically was... Uh, in a sense, going against the Constitution. They were trying to uh, exorcise the rights of what it was, 81 million people uh, that voted for Biden, which was something like 51.3% of the popular vote. And basically what they were trying to do is overturn their right to have a, a voice in the election because they didn't like the results of the election. Um, the thing you know that struck me you know as i was watching a lot of the footage of that day is that these guys were like like don quixote charging windmills they were charging a chimera they were attacking something that wasn't based in truth and dissent in order for it to be valid or effective has to be based on truth there has to be it has to be grounded in legitimacy uh, if if you belong to a group of people that rights are, are being denied and you don't you don't have the right to vote, for example, um, this is a legitimate grievance. But if you're trying to set up a situation that's going to you know maintain a system of white supremacy or a system in which you benefit but other people don't benefit from it. In fact, they may be, might be harmed uh, by the system because of the way you are benefiting. Then this is something that um, is, to me, not legitimate dissent. Let's go back in history. And uh, you know, it was just an anniversary of the Boston Tea Party in uh, mm -hmm. 1773. And you address this question in the book. Was the Boston Tea Party legitimate dissent or an act of property destruction or terrorism? 
Well, you know, that's a good question. And certainly, uh, like with the Earth Liberation Front in the, in what, 1980s, 1990s, when they burned down ski lodges and did all this property damage, uh, and they were considered, they're considered by the federal government to be a terrorist organization, eco-terrorists. And when some of the members of that group were called before Congress to testify, they compared their action to the Boston Tea Party, uh, which did tremendous amount of property damage. Uh, and it was property damage, not against any government agency, but to, you know, you know, merchants that were trying to bring the tea into the country. Um, this is one of the things in my courses on dissent in America, I get students talking about, is there a, a place for violent dissent, or at least violent dissent that's against property, if you're trying to make a point? Um, all of these things are very debatable, whether how legitimate they are or not, but they do, you know, have an impact when you're, especially when you're hitting the economic interests of the power structure. So, um, I wouldn't exactly call it terrorism. It was protest that, you know, basically gets onto the level of violent protest. Mm -hmm. And there are a number of examples of that throughout American history. Let's look at it. Here's kind of a broad question. But uh, what are some of the most influential acts of dissent that have been effective in American history? Well, you know, the women's movement, of course, the civil rights movement. And of course, we just you know, celebrated Martin Luther King yesterday. And um, these, you know, have had a significant amount of success. But again, if you look at our society today, uh, do women have complete equal, equal rights? Do African-Americans have complete equal rights? I mean, things are certainly better today than they were pre-civil rights movement or pre-women's movement. Um, but, you know, it's kind of a work in progress. That's another thing about dissent is that uh, dissenters push for progress, but almost always there's a reaction to it. You know, when a, when a dissent group, like when the women's movement was getting some real traction and moving towards the right to vote, you had the anti-suffrage movement come into being. When slavery was ended at the end of the Civil War, you had the birth of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, trying to roll back these advances, these progressions. And so one of the things that uh, is, you know, I also, also point out in the book is that dissent is moving in a certain direction, but for every couple of steps forward, there's always some backlash, there's steps going back with that. Um, one of the things I, you know, I, I like to emphasize to students in my classes is that, you know, when, when Jefferson wrote All Men Are Created Equal in 1776, he didn't mean what it means today. You know, he certainly didn't mean women and, certain, and many other groups. But the story of American history is the expansion of that phrase. That phrase means more today than it did back then, you know, by the 1820s, property, uh, men who didn't own property got the right to vote. In the 1870s, black men got the right to vote. In 1920, women got the right to vote. So it's it, this, this, you know, cre this created equal idea is becoming more inclusive over the years. But then of course, that begs the question, are we there yet? And there's still 
lots of economic inequality. There's a lot of other, uh, look at the anti-immigration you know, movement that's going on. There's so many different things that really need adjustment. Uh, Dr. Young, uh, you know, you were talking about always some pushback to dissent. You know, and you chronicle this throughout the book, that pushback. A lot of times at the beginning of dissent, when there was a campaign or a certain group was, uh, you know, was... uh, implementing some kind of dissent, that pushback wasn't very popular among large groups of people, was it? No, no. And what it is, of course, is that people, uh, you know, have been very much uh, ensconced in their ways of thinking. And, you know, the thing about dissent, think of it as a process, process of erosion. There is this society and people have certain assumptions i mean for example you know assumptions until recently were you know that you know african americans were somehow inferior or that women were the weaker sex i mean basically there's these centuries long assumptions that so many people have had and dissenters come along and they push against these assumptions and uh, a student of mine once commented in a paper that he thought of dissent as a process of erosion. It's like the ocean you know, crashing against the rocks on the shore, and eventually it becomes sand. And so think of dissenters are pushing for a new idea, a new way of looking at things uh, that, for example, that everybody is equal. And eventually it kind of uh, erodes the assumption that people have that there is inequality. And it start, people start thinking in terms, yes, this is correct. And then it basically creates a new set of assumptions, a new reality within the society. Mm. Um, so this is, you know, it, it's this long process. And sometimes, you know, for many dissenters, it takes much too long for them to get the, uh, the goals that they were seeking. And along those same lines, uh, many of the dissenters were labeled as traitors or un-American. Yes. One yes. of the things I noticed in uh, the, the book is there are a lot of socialists who were dissenters mm-hmm. and actually started change, right? Yes. And, and also, um, they were really considered, you know, evil traitors. I mean, Eugene V. Debs was arrested after he was protesting seriously against the First World War and uh, spent several years in prison, but and of course wound up conducting his entire 1920 presidential campaign from inside a, a prison cell. Uh, but a lot of you know, the ideas of Debs, even though socialism is still for a lot of people a bad word in this country, uh, but you know, it's much more accepted now. Um, uh, Eugene V. Debs, for example, is one of Bernie Sanders' per, you know, personal heroes. And uh, he is, far as socialism is concerned, I suppose a lot of you know, strong socialists would not think of him as a socialist, but as a democratic socialist, which is much more in line with you know, European kind of liberalism. Uh, but so many of the people that were you know, vilified at the time. Uh, you know, P- you know Thoreau, for example, you know, used his cabin in Walden at Walden Pond as a, a stop on the Underground Railway, where he kind of hosted fugitive slaves who were trying to escape. And yet, and of course, 
He was very much opposed to the fugitive slave law, and for a lot of people, was considered un-American. And and now, of course, he's sort of a hero as far as most Americans are concerned. You mentioned that you updated uh, your last book because of the amount of dissent that we have today. Just listing a few: Occupy Wall Street, the Tea Party, Black Lives Matter, the 2017 Women's March. Uh, reproductive issues, both sides, uh, that live with themselves pro-life and pro-choice, white supremacist. So all these things like coming at us at once, has there ever been a time in history where there have been so many people dissenting? Um, Well, there have been different times. I mean, during the Civil War, of course, this was a pretty dissentful time. Mm. And the Civil War itself is a product of dissent, you know, product of abolitionists fighting against slavery and then, you know, slave owners fighting against this. And, you know, incidentally, you know, speaking about violence and such, you know, the, the abolitionist movement did not end slavery. It helped bring on the Civil War, which ended slavery, which was extremely violent dissent. But um, so there's so many, uh, so many different periods in American history, for example, during the progressive movement in the the first decade of the 20th century, uh, this was when socialism was on the rise and the IWW, the international, international workers of the world, the, uh, there was, you know, that was a a very strong period of dissent, the 1960s, of course, Mm. uh, where dissent was in many aspects it wasn't just about race and the war in vietnam but it was also about values you know you had beatniks and then hippies challenging american values and mores and you know we still you know that had a huge change in american history today dissent has dissent has always been very controversial but it seems to be um extremely so nowadays where you have a, a really a strong system of nobody wants to compromise on either side of these issues so we do have a very divided time right now how do you get past that i mean this is a question that has been asked for the last 20 years you know we have a very politically divided country right now and I'm, I'm, I've heard people say, oh, it's never been, the United States has never been this divided. Well, you just made the point. Civil War was, we had a pretty divided country at that yeah. time. But, I mean, is there ever a day where Americans do come together unless there's a national tragedy like September 11th, 2001? Yeah, it seems that it always takes something like that to bring people together. I think one of the things people need to do is to stop living in their silos where they only listen to the the ideas that they agree with and this of course is one of the problems with january 6th these people that invaded the capital didn't want the election to be the way it was and so they latched on to this idea of, of being stolen but we need to start listening to each other and even if somebody you, that you completely disagree with they might say one thing that you might actually agree with and we need to start respecting each other's values. Hmm. Are you optimistic that will happen? 
No, not very. (laughs) (laughs) I I had a feeling you were going to say that. You know, I want to give an example of something happening today. Right now, there are demonstrations of protest over the Israeli actions in Gaza after Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Much of the dissent has been pro-Palestinian protest, blocking roads and highways, disrupting public events. Um, I've seen that backlash of people being very angry over it. So how does, you know, is it hard to tell that we're having dissent as it's happening and what kind of impact it will have? Well, you know, in a sense, when dissenters are creating havoc, like, you know, blocking traffic or uh, like part of the um, climate change uh, protests in in England, some people like, you know, handcuff themselves to goalposts during soccer games, which really disrupted a soccer game. Yeah, it's like a second goaltender. Yeah. Yeah, right. And so (laughs) all of this. But, but this is basically part of the whole process of civil disobedience. Uh, you know, you, there's passive resistance, nonviolent resistance, but civil disobedience is something that you are trying to get people to stop and pause and realize there's an issue. But if it results in anger, does it help the cause? Generally not. Uh, and this is one of the things that dissenters need to be very aware of is that the, the the actions that they perform are they winning converts or not and if you're just getting people angry with you you're you're actually probably holding back the cause we only have about 30 seconds dr young what do you want readers to take away from the book i, I want them to take away the fact that uh, dissent is basically a patriotic thing that people are taking seriously what the american constitution has promised that we have that we are equal that we have equal rights and that we have a right to dissent for those rights ralph young is author of american patriots a short history of dissent thank you very much for being with us today well thank you my pleasure Coming up on the second half of the Spark Weekly, almost 38 million people live in poverty in the U.S. Why so many and how to help them become self-sufficient? You're listening to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. Welcome back to the Spark Weekly. I'm Scott Lamar. January is National Poverty in America Awareness Month. Almost 38 million people are living in poverty in the U.S. The poverty line adjusted by the federal government each year was almost $15,000 in household income for a single person in 2023. For a family of four, it was just shy of $30,000. President Lyndon Johnson declared a war on poverty in the 1960s that included programs like Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, formerly known as Food Stamps, Medicare, Medicaid, Head Start, and expanded Social Security. Those programs kept millions out of poverty, but they obviously didn't eliminate it. So what factors lead to poverty today and what is being done to improve the lives of those living below the poverty line? On the Spark today, we're joined by Beck Moore, CEO of the Community Action Association of Pennsylvania, and Robin Rohrbach, President and CEO of the Community Progress Council in York County, and is on the board of directors for the Community Action Association of Pennsylvania to talk about poverty in 2024. I want to welcome both of you to the program today. 
Thank you so much for having us. So I'm going to ask this question of both of you. Beckmore, let me start with you kind of on a statewide basis. But what does poverty look like in 2024? Yeah, I think it's it's so multi-layered. You know, it's it's not something that I think people have this perception of what poverty is and they think that they can just point to it, but it's it's so 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 multifaceted, right? I mean, here in Pennsylvania alone, we have just over 12 million people and about I think, you know, 1.2 million of those folks are defined as living in poverty, but so many of us, in, including myself frankly, we're one emergency away from being right into a circumstance, right, that we we may have have come out of. And, I, you know, I think Robin is is really well-versed at talking about this on a more local level. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let her speak to this because while it's it's different and varied across the state, I think, you know, she's, she's seeing it as a client-based uh, day-to-day differently than what, what I am. So I'm going to let Robin talk a little bit more about that. Okay, Robin. Sure. So in York County, about 42,000 people live below the federal poverty level. An additional 150,000 people live below the self-sufficiency standard. And so I think one of the things that's really important for your listeners to understand is that um, poverty is a very, very low income threshold. Um, There are three times the number of people in York County who struggle from one month to the next to pay their bills and meet their financial needs. And so it is a much bigger issue than just thinking about the lowest income folks in our communities. I think the other thing that I would say is that um, 65% or greater of the people who live below the federal poverty level are working people. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that becomes a surprising fact for lots of folks. The largest population of people living in poverty are children or uh, people under the age of 18. And so it's somewhat, I think it's closer to 30% of the population of children live below poverty. So that's pretty astounding. And I think the other thing that we know is that female head of households are also experiencing higher levels of poverty. Um, This is an issue uh, that affects um, black and brown people much more intensively, uh, disproportionately than than our white counterparts. And so um, poverty looks like you and me, frankly, um, but it is uh, much bigger than just an issue of poverty. Let's talk about that uh, local poverty for just a moment, Robin Warbuck. How's different in the past? I mean, uh, Beck kind of touched on this, that uh, everyone kind of has a picture of what they think poverty looks like. But how is it different than in the past? I think different things contribute to poverty now than maybe they did in the past. So in the past, and I'm I'm going back pretty far, um, there were families where at least one adult in the family was staying home and caring for the children. Um, child care expenses now are a significant portion of a monthly budget for a family. Um, transportation was not as significant of an expense. Education wasn't as big of an expense back uh, in earlier days because labor uh, was a way that people, manual or physical labor, could um, enable someone to work and uh, be self-sufficient. Today, 
Um, our economy is much more based on uh, a, a skill set that requires sometimes advanced education. So um, different expenses now contribute to uh, uh, families' uh, expense to to get from one month to the next. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if I can if I can just add to that, Scott, if I may, you know, I think one of the things that if you think about really simplistically, growing utility costs. So from 2022 to 2023, we saw a 45% increase in some instances in gas and oil, electricity, right? And when you already consider how pressed someone's income is, household income in terms of housing burden, right? And 40% of income going to housing. And then that type of increase, when you already have folks who are living disproportionately in homes that are not weatherized or not well insulated and they don't have access to efficient energy, that type of increased energy cost in a home like that becomes exponentially larger for someone who's already has a stress budget. And you know, I don't have to tell anyone, but weather like we've had the past couple days, everyone kind of knows that if your your house is not or your apartment is not weatherized and you have uh, this cold coming in, it it really is a is a burden, not just the financially, but uh, even physical well being. So, uh, Beckmore, you and well, the organization takes issue with the designated poverty line. I mentioned uh, $15,000 in household income for a single individual, almost $30,000 for a family of four. You know, the federal government designates those lines each year. But as I said, your organization takes issue with those numbers. Why? Yeah, I mean, I think, and I'm, I'm going to let Robin talk about this a little bit more, but, you know, from on a really basic level, those guidelines were initially established by the Social Security Administration in the 60s uh, based on pre-tax income. And there's been no increase in consideration for things like the cost of groceries, the things like increased cost of transportation, childcare, things already that that Robin mentioned. And so we think about some, you know, again, some really simple concepts, right, of a 3% increase in salary and what that means for somebody. And we consider, you know, how those those guidelines have not really changed more broadly or even on a regional basis or on a statewide basis. You know, the cost of living in Pennsylvania is very different than the cost of living in California. Mm -hmm. And so there's regionality to it. It's just not that simplistic. And it's amazing to me that while we have created all of these complexities in other ways, we've not been thoughtful about, about this particular uh, point of data that we have so much information about. Mm -hmm. Robin, you kind of touched on this a few minutes ago when you were saying that uh, the, you, you, you kind of talked about how those lines are established by the federal government, but even those, even those who are living above those lines are having trouble from time to time. Correct. I, I think the one thing that I would add to what Beck said about the federal poverty line is that it's a, it's an extremely arbitrary uh, line in the sand, so to stay, say, and it's frequently used to uh, determine eligibility for services. You said a minute ago that it it uh, that services helped people to get out of poverty. I, I would argue that it didn't help people to get out of poverty. Those services but it helped to sustain or maintain them in poverty. Hmm. And I, I believe that it is structured in such a way that, that we are doomed to fail. 
let me give you an example of that. So we have programs that have a 120% of poverty as an eligibility standard. And so if it's a family of four and poverty is $30,000, 120% of that would be $36,000 for a family of four. So I, I would encourage any listener to think about a monthly budget for a family of four, being able to pay rent, utilities, groceries, healthcare, um, childcare for $36,000 uh, annually. And, and so if they make $36,001, they are no longer eligible for a service. So, so I, I think it's really important to understand that many programs are funded to maintain people in poverty. And it's until we begin to have this conversation about what is the total cost for a person to live, a family to live from one month to the, to the next, um, that we're going to continue to have conversation about poverty level and people in poverty never changing. It's not changing because it's not set up to change. Let me That's ask maybe and- a- Ask the two of you this. I mean, what you, when you say that uh, this is an arbitrary number, you know, I'm always conscious on this program when we're talking about something like this, that we're talking about real people. We're not, okay, a lot of times we use statistics and, you know, that's how we, I don't know if we define people, but that's where they're they're placed. So, you know, when we're talking about real people, I don't know, Beth, how do you uh, how do you get the message across to other people that there are so many people living, and I hate to even say living in poverty, but are having trouble paying all those things that you mentioned, like rent, rent especially. That has gone up so much over the past year, year and a half. Uh, those utilities, food, the basics. I mean, when we're talking about real people rather than numbers, how do we get the message across? Yeah, I mean, I think that's where, you know, in, in the state of Pennsylvania, we have 43 community action agencies. We're the membership organization that supports them and helps to you know, advocate and tell stories. And the storytelling is what is is so critical. I mean, we... We, we partner with Community Progress Council, right, and so many of our other agencies to, to try to lift up and share what is happening. So I'm going to let Robin address that question because she can she can tell you, right, real life examples of the people that she's seeing every day. Yeah, we one of the things we do to help people understand the difference between poverty and self-sufficiency and and just so I can place that for your listeners. Self-sufficiency is the cost that uh, that a person has to or the, the money that a person has to earn on a monthly basis to pay all of their expenses. So for the federal poverty level, it looks at one factor around a food budget. Um, but for self-sufficiency, it considers rent, transportation, health care, child care, so on and so forth. It's a much more rounded measure of of the cost to sustain oneself. Um, And what self-sufficiency standard doesn't do is allow someone to save money or save money towards college or go to college or even save for retirement. So it is still a basic subsistence level, but it is three times more money typically 
than the federal poverty level. So you mentioned the family of four at $30,000. The self-sufficiency standard is $90,000 for that same family of four. So I think it's important that we put context to what we are calling low-income folks. Um, the age of the children, the physical location of that, the geographic location of the family matters. Certainly the cost of living in York, Pennsylvania is drastically different than Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, or New York City. And so a standard, a threshold for service should be considering those geographical and family composition differences. What I would say to you also is that one of the best ways Community Progress Council has found to help people understand poverty and self-sufficiency is that we hold poverty simulations and we do one every January. And it really does talk about not just poverty, but self-sufficiency and the struggle that a family will go through to get from where they are to um, a self-sufficiency level or economic uh, stability. And so we are doing a poverty simulation on January the 30th um, from 5 to 7 p.m. We'd invite folks to come out and experience that with us. It is an extremely impactful experience and then conversation to process all of the multitudes of factors that intersect to create this perfect storm that keeps people down, frankly. And I, and I think that, that that poverty simulation, right, it, it, it shows to people, to your point earlier, Scott, about how do you tell that story, right? The social determinants of health, right? The Not just the body that we're born into, but our outward environmental components of, right, how we live, where we live, who our parents are, what our family makeup is, right? The the generational poverty that may have come before us in our family, all of those things, right? That poverty simulation helps people understand what that means and about the whole health of the person and how long we live is directly impacted, right? By the things that we don't think about all the time, right? The, the neighborhood that we live in, the access to a sidewalk to get to some, a place to a bus, something as simple as a bus stop to be able to go to a grocery store. Is there a grocery store locally? That's when people start to feel and understand either the privilege that they have or the privilege that they don't have in 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 a lot of different ways. So let's talk about uh, Community uh, Progress Council. Uh, Robin, what do you do? Try to help people to get to that self-sufficiency. Right. So Community Progress Council has a multitude of programs available to help folks address various issues. Um, we have a comprehensive array from early childhood education to nutrition supports, workforce programming, um, uh, so on and so forth. I think what I would want to explain is that the, the best thing that we do is we partner one-on-one -on -one with uh, families who come to us, individuals who come to us with challenges, and we do an assessment of their needs. And we wrap services, all of our comprehensive services around them, but also then connect them to services in the community. It is, you know, we say often any one service is valuable. You can uh, get on our WIC program, Women, Infants and Children Supplemental Nutrition, or you can enroll in Head Start or get into a workforce or a housing education program. Any one of those is helpful. What is most helpful 
is when we put an array of services together, we combine those services and continually monitor someone's utilization and um, barriers. So Beck mentioned earlier, you know, a flat tire, not a huge big deal. You get a, a flat tire, you get a plug put in your tire, you're good to go the next day. But for a low income person, if you don't have that 50 to $100 to pay for the plug to get in your tire, you may miss work the next day. So on and so forth. it's a snowball effect that then they lose their employment and they fall backwards. Community Progress Council through our coaches would be there with that person to help them problem solve around that emergency issue that is cropping up and keep them motivated and focused on the goals for the future. Um, we believe here that is that comprehensive integrated array of services where we partner one-on-one -on -one that is the game changer for the families that come to us for help. Mm. Uh, Beck, I, I'm curious, though, and I don't know whether you can answer this question or not, but uh, I think uh, both of you have touched on this a little bit, a cycle of poverty that, uh, you know, what Robin just described, working one-on-one, -on -one, okay, that's one-on-one. -on -one. Unfortunately, there are people who have lived in poverty for decades, if not generations. How do you end that cycle? Yes, I mean, I think that's, that's a hard <laughs> I question. I that one. Oh, well, you, okay, you can I, I jump think, in on it. We got about two minutes, by the way. Yeah, I mean, I think this is where community action is, is really, is is so well equipped to do this work, right? Robin is a great example of this as a local agency. Community Progress Council, right? They have a centralized intake process that's going to address whole family and think about the in, entire, right, individual child, the mother, the father, whatever the family dynamics are in the instance of that family, in order to figure out it's not just about this one instance, it's about all of these things. And, and they may come in for, I need this service to impact this, but through their intake process, they're figuring out, right, okay, this is the other service that this person would really benefit from. from. And this is where, right, it's going to really help somebody to get out of that cycle of poverty. And so it's about thinking about the whole family, the whole person, and all of the pieces that play a part of that, that puzzle. Robin, we only have about 30 seconds left. And if you could put your message into 30 seconds, <laughs> more power yeah. to you. <laughs> I think that one of the things uh, we always say around here is you're never going to get people out of poverty through their three-year-old. It is because parents love their children and connect with us to support their kids that we then can work with the families. If we can get a family, a parent, to change the way they address financial issues, their children will learn those same lessons. And so we do look at the whole family and our approach to helping folks, and we believe that's important. Robin Rohrbach, President and CEO of the Community Progress Council in York County. Beck Moore, CEO, Community Action Association of Pennsylvania. Thank both of you for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Spark Weekly. To learn more or hear other past Spark programs, go to witf.org slash the Spark. I'm Scott Lamar.